0: Hi Joe. Hello. This is a pre-roll. Yeah, unfortunately we're not going to do the, the mailbag in the pre-roll. We're starting to get some things in the mailbag. Mm. And a question on Twitter to to think about. Oh. Um some but... really, some really good letters in in the mailbag. But we are Oral Argument Podcast at gmail.com. But we are just going to jump right into it.
1: Now, we really, really are going to jump right into <laughs> it because we lost some recorded material. We only lost like 60 seconds. So it's going to, eh, I think we lost more like, uh, uh, mm 240. 240 but, seconds? Correct. I don't think so. It just, I don't know. Putting that to one side, uh, it's going to sound maybe a little more abrupt than usual, but our guest is Larry Solemn at Georgetown Law School. Uh, talking about a paper entitled, which this will be in the show notes, Originalism versus Living Constitutionalism, colon, The Conceptual Structure of the Great Debate. Uh, oh, we didn't tell him. We should have, I, you
0: know, I think he knows, but like Larry has been referred to as the T3 Jedi on this show before. He has He's in been re- The only person that we've referred to as a Jedi, I think, in real I life. I think
1: that's a fair point, yeah. <laughs> uh, and that was back in episode 98. This is a conversation about the kessler and Posen paper on uh, theories working themselves impure. Yeah, that didn't come up. I mean, there's so
0: much to talk about. You know, when you have someone on like Larry, who's done so much with originalism, like you there you could talk about a million different things. Yes, and for a million hours. And he's written about all of them. Correct. Um, So we tried to keep it somewhat narrow in scope, but it inevitably, because as we were just because saying, we're, as we were just saying, when we hung up, everything is hitched to everything else. Yeah, could, but yeah. we're
1: talking about a particular paper. Yeah. And so we're trying to use that paper to orient our conversation throughout. Yeah. Well, how do you
0: anything else to kind of set the stage, Joe? No. Uh, any complaints? Do you want to, no. um, uh, any, I wish I,
1: it weren't as wet. I wish the weather were not quite as wet as it's been the last few days. Okay. Well, that's at least not directed at me. So <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't think you have control over the weather. No. If you do have control over the weather, there are some to do's that I would like to share with you.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: Anything, any other announcements?
0: Do we have mm-hmm. announcements? I feel like we it, housekeeping. Should we no. do other things? You know? No. No. All right. We say you know, uh, like and subscribe. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the YouTube thing, right? Right. Yeah. No, we don't. We don't do that kind of zany stuff. Not do we? really. No. Hey, but tell, tell tell your friends about the show. We can sure. Say sure. That. Yeah. Help people find out about it. That would be good. For now, though, let's get on with it.
1: Again, a, a critical distinction the paper makes is between modes of discourse. You've got an academic discourse about originalism, you've got a, a judicial one about originalism, and just so for living constitutionalism. When I think a lot of times when I, when I hear talk about originalism, and it's not an area that I write in or that I'm a scholar of, uh, but I'm interested in language and interpretation and because of IP law and patent law especially, um, you know, I, one hears about it. And so I, I wonder... When you make a distinction when one makes a distinction between an academic mode and a judicial mode, how close or far apart should those things be i mean it, we're 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 not just academics we're legal academics so so surely part of what we're interested in is how judges do what, whatever it is they do. Um, how do you see the connection between those two discourses
2: I think that it's a really interesting relationship between sort of academic discourse and uh, judicial practice in constitutional theory. This is not just originalism, it's also non-originalist constitutional theory. You know, if you back way up to James Bradley Thayer in the 1890s and uh, his early articulation of what became progressive constitutional theory. Uh, the ideas that he articulated in his early work, uh, in the beginning, it was just an academic theory, and it took a period of some 30 years for it to be translated into constitutional practice. And it was the coming of the New Deal that did that. Well, um, I think that's the way it generally works. So uh, with originalism, I think that there has been all along more interaction between what judges do and what academics do. And one of the reasons for that is that Justice Scalia uh, began to push originalism both as uh, a justice on the Supreme Court and uh, as... A sort of a continuing active uh, scholar and theoretician. So uh, there there's maybe more direct communication in an earlier stage uh, than uh, uh, there usually is in constitutional theory. You know, you think about the living constitutionalist side of things. So, there's vibrant and diverse living constitutionalist scholar now, there's sort of the Dworkin moral readings approach, there's David Strauss's common law constitutionalism, there's uh, the constitutional pluralist approaches of Dick Fallon uh, and Philip Bobbitt, and uh, those are academic theories Uh, And unlike originalism, you don't see very many judges engaged in direct interaction with those theories. But that doesn't mean that they're not having an influence and that they won't have a long-term influence. You know, I think that we need to talk about both things. We need to talk about sort of the ideal version of originalist theory, and we need to talk about what is being done in the name of originalism in the courts.
0: Well, Larry, do you see Do you see a lot of legal academia, and in particular, this debate about um, meta interpretive principles? Are such theories really proposals to action in the public sphere? Is there another aspect to this? And I know we all, you know, engage in, um, in, in academic writing for all kinds of reasons, including the, the joy of learning and knowledge itself. But is one thing that's distinctive about certain kinds of legal academic discourse is that they are more or less kind of direct proposals for implementation?
2: Yeah. And I I do think that um, not all originalism, but that uh, much of academic originalism does seek to influence judicial practice. I mean, you have to be very modest, right? right. That's your goal, because uh, the chances for direct direct influence are obviously limited. I would just say in this area, I think there's an unusual amount of contact between academic theory and uh, judging. So I think there's all kinds of reasons for that. One reason was Justice Scalia, uh, who had lots of healthy skepticism about what was going on in the academy, but was really aware of the academic discourse. He was self-consciously trying to engage in dialogue with academics. Another reason is that many of the recent uh, originalist appointees, both to the Supreme Court and to the Court of Appeals, have an unusually high degree of uh, sort of theoretical sophistication. So, you know, on the current Supreme Court, both Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, you know, read the academic literature and are unusually sophisticated and aware of uh, what's going on with academic originalism. And the same thing is true of many of the recent appointees to the Court of Appeals. I can think of at least half a dozen uh, Court of Appeals judges who are very sophisticated about academic theory and are they really are uh, looking uh, to have a dialogue with academics because they are uh, themselves working out what it means to be an originalist judge, and despite the fact that we've been debating originalism since the early 1980s, it's really only very recently, very recently that there has been a critical mass of originalists uh, on the federal courts enough originalist judges to have a substantial impact on practice.
0: Yeah, I teach uh... Scalia's Tanner lectures in, in a couple of courses that I teach when I'm teaching foundational interpretive methods is at least as an introduction. And, you know, one thing that is distinctive about Scalia is that he has what I've called elsewhere, kind of a level four theory. He has a theory for um, for theory choice, right? If, if your interpretive theory is originalism in the Tanner lectures, and I think in a matter of interpretation, he kind of lays out why one might choose that theory. That. Kind of meta-interpretive commitment is something you argue for elsewhere, and you are going to be arguing for, I think, in a in, what what looks like is coming a massive tome about originalism. That's all I can <laughs> that's all I can see in here is that, that that's coming. But um, um, but in this paper you don't do that, right? In this paper it's more, you know, what is originalism exactly? You know, there are a bunch of different like interpretive theories out there. How do they fit together? And so too on the living constitutionalist side. And then there are these hybrid theories. What are they really? And so I guess one question is like. Why? Why is it important to get straight about which normative theories of interpretive choice go together?
2: Yeah, and my my inclination for a very long time was to try to finesse this issue, right? To just say, "Look, what matters is the substance, not what we call our theories." So let's just get on with the substance. But uh, my experience was that that move was not working, Mm. that people wanted to talk about what originalism was and wasn't, and that uh, you just could not uh, evade the question about what the labels uh, should be applied to, and therefore sort of the underlying question, which is, What are the concepts that we're working with here? And and that led me sort of on this long journey, trying to figure out a set of tools for dealing with uh, these questions, which I now, you know, one of the things I came to realize is that there's a vocabulary from uh, philosophy that's very helpful here. Sometimes this idea is called metalinguistic negotiation. So this is the idea that You know we have serious uh, debates about sort of what words mean and what how concepts are shaped. Right? You know what is the shape of originalism as a concept, and that people really care about these issues. David Plunkett, who's a legal philosopher at Dartmouth, is one of the people who's uh, worked on this idea, and. I just I once I saw this tool for thinking about the issues, it really opened my eyes to why the debates would not go away. There people are really invested in questions about what originalism really is, and they want to argue about those questions. So I just felt like, you know, I've got rather than than face these, you know, these issues on an ad hoc basis that I would try to tackle them in a systematic way. And that's why this article, um, you know, sort of sprung into being is that I was trying to uh, nail down the way I thought about it in a way that I thought might be helpful to other people uh, as they're thinking about these questions. Am I remembering
1: correctly that the an example of this metalinguistic negotiation idea was the was secretariat?
2: Yes, so there's a famous article in Sports Illustrated that identified the 50 greatest athletes of the 20th century, and they were the last 50 years, and they put Secretariat on the list. And then there was, as you might imagine, a tremendous debate about whether Secretariat could or could not count as an athlete and no one was disagreeing about the facts. Everyone knew that secretariat is a horse, and uh, everyone sort of knows how we use athlete in lots of contexts, and then the question whether or not this concept athlete uh, can or can't include nonhumans is the subject of a metalinguistic contest or argument about how we should conceive of the concept of an athlete. And what's funny, what's funny about the
1: example is that it's not, it's not only
2: that there is
1: this sort of uh, contestation over the scope of athlete, but the fact that one very easy answer you might give, which is, hey, Sports Illustrated published the article, they're entitled to approach it however they'd like, Um, is everyone else also feels like they have something at stake in a debate about the scope of the word athlete, even though they don't own Sports Illustrated. Right. That there's something about the w- use of words in a community and, and meaning making together that says, no, let's f- f- have a fight about the scope of athlete and whether secretariat, who's an awesome horse, should be on the list.
2: And so in the case of originalism, you get similar struggles. Right. So just a couple of examples. So Marty Reddish. Uh, with a student co-author, wrote a really interesting article, one point of which was to complain about the so-called new originalism. And uh, uh, Reddish was saying, look, originalism, that's conservative. And uh, uh, these people who think that uh, the original, that we can have a version of originalism that permits progressive results, they're engaged in some kind of a con game. He, he said it was, you know, like Orwellian uh, <laughs> newspeak, right, to to use the word originalism in that way. So he's trying to uh, preserve the connection between originalism and uh, conservative outcomes, right? And, and then, you know, there, there are lots of similar moves. And on the other hand, you know, you've got people who uh, use the label "living constitutionalism" for their approach, and they're uncomfortable with the idea that living constitutionalism might commit them to a power of judges to override or modify the constitutional text. You know, for obvious legitimacy reasons, that that makes some theorists uncomfortable, and so they're trying to draw the line in a way. That preserves sort of a reasonable form of living constitutionalism, uh, uh, and that presses them to try to confine originalism to a more extreme view. Mitch Berman, uh, very famous, very fine article. Originalism is bunk. Not my favorite title. <laughs> uh, argues that pro, you know that that really we ought to reserve the word originalism. For the view that the only thing that matters in constitutional interpretation is the original meaning of the text, that no other considerations can ever enter into the process of constitutional interpretation and construction. And, of course, that makes originalism sort of a very rigid and narrow view. Uh, and there are just so many arguments that work like this. So my goal is to try to sort out these disputes and help us think about how we might resolve them. So I want to get into the
0: charting that you do. That's really interesting here in a second. But just one more about the about the framing of it, because I can I see kind of two purposes or 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 two efforts going on at the same time here, and one of them. Seems to me very pragmatic and sensible, and the other is the one that's the, uh, um, that I have more questions about. And, and so the first is that to the extent that you observe in the world people arguing about uh, meta-interpretive principle, and and someone says I'm an originalist, and here's what I mean to do, and the other person uh, contra- you know counteracts that by arguing that um, that commits you to you know X, Y, and Z. Um, and, and X, Y, and Z are unacceptable and therefore your whole theory is unacceptable when in fact the person's concept of, uh, conception of originalism didn't involve X, Y, and Z. And so, and so one project is to get straight about the different theories of interpretation one might have regardless of label. You know, here's, here's one way of thinking about how we should interpret the constitution or statutes or anything else for that matter. And, and so creating a kind of list of, of, of normative interpretive theories – would be an important project and would help to kind of straighten out the discourse, at least among the people who would pay attention to such an effort. But then there's a further project one might have. And this, in the secretariat example, it might be, here are the different theories people have of what athletics is and how one should rank such things, right? And, but then there's a further thing uh, that you might have, which is saying, okay, taking all of these different approaches, how can they be or how should they be it's kind of a further normative. It's a it's a normative theory about normative theories. But how should they be categorized together? What is what what makes them inseparable from one another? And this is the part that seems a little bit more like maybe a dorm room conversation, right? That um, secretariat is really not an athlete, and here's why. And and and, and the arguments you make back and forth, and I, it seems to me in that conversation about secretariat, are just kind of recapitulations of one's own normative theories, like you know, no. It, Secretary, it's an athlete because X, Y, Z or not. And, and then there's like no true Scotsman arguments back and forth. You know, as to that, you might take, you know, the Sunstein view about there is nothing that interpretation just is. You might say that there is no – like there is nothing that int- that originalism just is. There is just a list of things that some people happen to call originalist. And it. so part of the project of the paper – and this is the one I'd like to hear you, you know, talk more about um, – just in the framing part is like, why, why is it important not only to get straight about what the different theories are and what makes them distinctive, but why is it further important to categorize them and put them under a similar label? In other words, why, you know, if we think of this as kind of a Linnaean system, why is it important to have, uh, to, to say, no, this is what this family of, of critters really is um, without saying, yeah, there could be other categorizations. Um, what's important is that we know that this species is different from this other species. Do you know what I mean?
2: I absolutely know what you mean. And I want to just say, first of all, that I do still believe that the substance is much more important than the labels. Uh, So uh, uh, whether or not we're ever able to agree on a vocabulary, I think that uh, we can still continue sort of the normative debate about what's the best approach to constitutional interpretation, whatever label may be. Uh, uh, applied uh the thing that moved me to to take the the sort of the issues of uh labeling and conceptual clarity seriously is just uh how much this gets in the way of the uh the the first order normative considerations and so sometimes the label used here is conceptual ethics, right? Mm. These are the normative considerations that bear on the shape of our concepts and their attachment to particular labels. So for instance, uh, in a theoretical context, we have opposing theories. Uh, I think that a very important consideration is that you insofar as possible want to take into account sort of self identification so if you have a group of theories and the proponents of those theories label their theories as originalist you want to you you may not be able to respect that but you want to try to be able to respect that and 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 likewise with living constitutionalists you don't want to say no you're wrong about what your own theory is Unless unless you have to, unless that's the only way you can make sense of the terminology. You want to try to respect uh, the way that these theoretical terms are used by theorists, right? You want to try to respect uh, the patterns of usage. And I think you want to do something more. You want to try to get to what the underlying issues really are in a way that renders the normative debates... Uh, clear that makes uh, our understanding of the stakes of talking about originalism and living constitutionalism more focused. Uh, that makes us better able to talk to one another uh, in in sort of a in in a way where the the use of the terminology is perspicuous and illuminating, rather than obfuscating and confusing
1: yeah that's certainly a, a a in a way it's a fundamental belief in the value of ongoing conversation that uh in order to begin to engage with each other when we don't agree uh, uh or or may not agree like we may learn that we don't the kind the levels of clarity that you're talking about uh, i think are are very helpful uh because when you disagree you know better what it is you're disagreeing about on the on the respecting people's sort of labels um, I guess one thing I was wondering about in terms of your, your uh, identification of some hybrid categories, um, and Jack Balkin in particular, uh, so, so do you think he <laughs> – what do you think he would make of your hybrid – your list of hybrid versions? He seems to want to be called an originalist, not a hybridist.
2: And he wants to be called a living constitutionalist.
1: That, true enough. Um, so he he might be the uh, the oddest bird. But I
2: think Balkan, you know. So so first of all, uh, I think Balkan is entirely comfortable with the idea that his theory is a hybrid theory in the following sense that it is an originalist theory, and it is a living constitutionalist theory. And therefore, it quite obviously is a hybrid between originalism and living constitutionalism. So uh, to that extent, I don't think he has any problems with uh, the idea of hybridity. But I think that Balkan wants to uh, say something more than that, and that is he wants to maintain the idea that there need be no opposition of any at, at a conceptual level between originalism and living constitutionalism and this is the point at which jack's theory starts to uh create a whole set of metalinguistic issues. So there are people who then want to say, no, right? If you are a living <laughs> constitutionalist, you're just not an originalist. These theories are rivals of one another. And, you know, at some level, this is all just a matter of labels. And 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 so, okay, well, we disagree about how the label should be used. But if that debate doesn't go away, and My experience is that trying to stipulate the definitions just gets you nowhere in these kinds of discussions because people really are invested in the metalinguistic issues. Then the question is, is there a way of going forward? Is there a way of talking that can respect both the idea that Balkan has a theory that is originalist in a a very important sense and living constitutionalist in a very important sense and that originalism and living constitutionalism are normally conceived as oppositional theories. Hence, my metalinguistic proposal, which is (laughs) that we acknowledge those issues and we say there are theories that are hybrids that are originalist in a sense and living constitutionalist in a sense, but are, that are different than many other originalist theories and different than many other living constitutionalist theories. And they, de- they deserve to be thought of in uh, sort of a, a different, as belonging to a different conceptual space. And I think that there are other theories besides Jack's Balkans that belong in that category and so in the paper, I talk about constitutional compromise, which I think is a real world phenomenon, uh, uh, that tends, uh, not to be discussed much by, uh, the academics. And so this is like
0: whatever your theory, like it's, uh, uh, it includes Brown against board, even if Brown so, against so board. Example, yeah. for I, I
2: think I, uh, uh, in, in among originalist judges. There is a lot of uh, respect for precedent, you know, and Scalia, of course, is famous for uh, calling himself at an er- early stage a faint hearted originalist, and I don't think there are any originalist judges who are going to want to overrule Brown v board uh, uh, even if they were convinced that Brown v board could not be supported by the original meaning of the Fourteenth Amendment. So one constitutional compromise is to say something like originalism, that's sort of your baseline view, but there are some cases, you know, we academics call them the canonical cases that are just beyond question. So uh we can compromise here. We grandfather in these canonical cases, and then we pursue originalism. Uh, 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 on other topics. That's a compromise. It's neither uh, pure originalism nor pure uh, living constitutionalism. It's a hybrid that has elements of both.
0: Let's focus specifically on the sense in which they're hybrids and get a little bit concrete so that kind of listeners will appreciate Kind of your commitments to this category of originalism. So, as I understand it, you would define a category called originalism based on whether a theory comports with what you call the fixation thesis—that the meaning of a legal authority is fixed at the time of its creation. Uh, the legal semantic, the, the well, okay, so distinguishing legal meaning and semantic meaning. So I don't want to. Already, I'm kind of getting confused with it. But the but the, the uh, semantic meaning is fixed at the time of creation and uh And then, what you call the constraint principle, and that is that the semantic meaning the original semantic meaning constrains um uh, the legal effect in some way. it may not be determinative but it, but it constrains and I think earlier you called that the fidelity thesis um and one thing i'd be interested in is is um because i haven 't read everything <laughs> uh is whether constraint and fidelity are the are basically playing the same role, but I guess the idea with uh with Balkan's theory for example as you as you characterize it in the paper is that that he does think that there is a semantic meaning uh, which is fixed at the time of creation, and he does think it provides constraints, but you characterize his theory as as very th- kind of in- interprets the uh constraint very thinly because there is a very little kind of constraint imposed by that original semantic meaning um i don't you do you want to correct what I just said? <laughs>
2: Yeah. So no, no, no. I think you've gotten the, the basics right. I would just say it a little bit differently. The terminology that I use now, as opposed to in my very first effort on this back in two thousand eight, is communicative content. The reason that I say communicative content is that the uh, the meaning communicated by a legal text is not just semantics. Semantics is the literal meaning. But the full communicative communicative content includes the role played by context, and in the philosophy of language and theoretical linguistics, that dimension of meaning is called pragmatic. Which, unfortunately, that that term has a separate legal theory meaning associated, sort of, with Posner's pragmatism, that is just a completely different idea. Best avoided <laughs> here. And so, but so, so, so uh, let's just say context. So communicative content is both semantics plus context. Jack Balkin, one of his moves is to focus on semantics and to exclude uh, the roles, the enriching role of context, the way in which context fills out the meaning of the text, enriches the meaning of the text, except, the way he puts this is, except to the extent that it is necessary to make sense of the literal meaning. So there's a certain amount of contextual disambiguation you have to do to make sense of a text, and he would allow that. That's very important. This uh, difference between the thin meaning that Balkan is, communicate, is committed to and sort of the full contextually enriched communicative content is important because that uh, difference will determine the size of the construction zone, as I put it. That is, it will determine the extent to which the meaning of the constitutional text under determines the legal content of constitutional doctrines. If you just go with the disambiguated literal meaning, that creates tremendous freedom for judges to fill in the content of the text, hence living originalism. Uh, whereas if you go with sort of the full communicative content, taking all of the operation of context into account, you get a thicker meaning and therefore less freedom for judges to fill in the content.
1: So what would be an example of uh, a, a constitutional provision where y- you, you could identify a, a meaning you would ascribe for communicative content that Jack Balkin would say, no, that's that's already too thick. So
2: let, let's do the recess appointments clause, right? So, and the Noel Canning case, because this was a case in which the justices were arguing about precisely this phenomenon that we're now talking about. So the recess appointments clause um, refers to the recess of the Senate, And the surrounding constitutional provisions also refer to the session of the Senate. So if you uh, go with just the semantics, and this is what Justice Breyer did in his opinion, you go with just the semantics, the semantic meaning of the word recess is a break of any length. And in fact, if you go back to Noah Webster's 1828 Dictionary, the example he gives of recess is a 30-minute break (laughs) taken by the House of Representatives. Perfect. That is the semantic meaning of the word recess. And that's a very thin meaning. It's a break of any kind, right? And uh, then that allows Justice Breyer to fill in uh, the construction zone created by that very thin semantic meaning uh, with an elaborate set of implementing rules where he's got three-day periods and 10-day periods and uh, a, a very elaborate set of implementing rules that are attached to the thin semantic meaning. And on the other hand, Um, The other group of justices in Noel Canning are saying, wait a second, you're looking at the word recess uh, without taking the context into account. So uh, uh, what the whole phrase here is the recess of the Senate and the meaning of that phrase has to be understood in light of the reference in the text to the session of the Senate. And If you believe that a reader would understand the recess of the Senate as juxtaposed to the session of the Senate, that limits the recess appointment clause to the breaks between sessions, to so-called inter-session recesses, as opposed to intra-session recesses. So. We now have a disagreement about the meaning of the clause. Uh, Justice Breyer's interpretation is based on sort of bare semantics and it allows for a huge construction zone and and then that construction zone is filled in by implementing rules. And uh, on the other hand, if we take into account the contextual enrichment of uh, of the text, sort of the way in which the whole text operates together and see this thicker meaning to the recess of the Senate, then it turns out that there's not nearly as much room for judicial constructions to fill in that thin semantic content. So it's sort of the most, it's, it's a particularly beautiful example because you can see contextual enrichment in operation versus semantics and it's actually there in a Supreme Court opinion, and the focus of disagreement between the justices.
1: And what is it about uh, either fixation or a constraint that should lead one to conclude that the latter approach was the more originalist approach?
2: Yeah, so, so um, uh, actually, uh, uh, this is uh, a third idea. So the fixation thesis is just the idea that whatever The meaning is the actual meaning, the communicative content is fixed at the time that the constitutional provision is framed and ratified. And the constraint principle is just the idea that um, whatever that meaning is, That meaning ought to constrain judges, uh, and that they should not be able to do something that's inconsistent with that meaning, and that all of the meaning should be reflected in what they do, and that they can't just make stuff up. That is, um, constitutional doctrines have to be fairly traceable to the meaning. So, implementing rules can't be implementation of nothing, they must be implementation of the constitutional text. But a third idea is necessary to get us to this question of the difference between semantic meaning and full communicative content, including contextual enrichment. And that's a theory of what the original meaning is. So, um, you know, public meaning originalism is the theory that it's the meaning communicated to the public and my version of public meaning originalism and Justice Scalia's version and I think most judges version is that it's not the literal meaning it is the it's sort of the full content that was delivered and you know and how do we figure that out I think you have to go to the philosophy of language and linguistics and once you're there You get a rich, empirically informed explanation of the specific roles that context plays in the production of meaning in ordinary communication, and the constitution is no different in this regard.
0: But this seems like a like a specific choice among several very. So, if we're just engaged in a pragmatic attempt. Uh, to, you know, we, there's some piece of, of communicative data out in the world. Maybe it's a statute. Maybe it's something that people have said at a particular time. Maybe it's something that people have said over uh, over a certain period. And we're trying to figure out to what extent is, is, is that thing, uh, to what extent should it affect the way we decide something now? It seems to me that in considering that, we have a number of variables. One is time. Um, do I consider the meaning of that data of those data now, or do I consider the meaning of those data at an at some earlier point? Possibly when those data were originated. That that could be one point. Um, then I might want to uh, take into account the creator of those data, the medium of those data. So, was it written down or not, and and the audience for those data, and and then I have to make certain choices. So, so with each of those, at least if they're human beings or collections of human beings. Um, they might have a view of the meaning of those data. It's speaker, different audiences, you know, the people around at the time of passage, the people around now. I, once I have a model of an audience, I can have a model of of how they assign meaning to those data. And one way to, you know, and this is my kind of naive view of linguistics, which you can probably clear up. One way of thinking about meaning is um, as as an equivalence relation, you know, that there really is no, you can't say what, what this really means. But what you can say if you have a certain model of meaning is that if you give me some other statement B I can tell you whether or not A and B mean the same thing, right? This, is, In that sense, it's an equivalence relation in more of a mathematical sense. And if I'm trying to apply some, some rule, essentially what I'm trying to do is um, to translate uh, uh, A, you know, data A, into something that looks like it will be a mere logical deduction to conclude X. And so I'm trying to figure out whether that – Equivalence relation will, will lead me from something which is just uttered and, and doesn't appear to resolve the case to something which actually does resolve the case. Um, and I might be looking at these various audiences or the originators, um, what kinds of equivalence relations they maintain or how they might have applied the thing or whether or not what they, their view of the data gives assent to a certain set of principles that can resolve the thing. But then ultimately, I'm going to have to have a theory of authoritativeness, right? So do I assign authority to the audience and therefore I'm looking for their equivalence relations and which audience or to the originators or to some other institution. Um, so it seems to me like that that, that model of like social reality is um, – it, it, it kind of – it's not at, at war with anything that you've done here but maybe more capacious and expansive and, and, and maybe shows how um, these different originalist families – uh, are these these different um, uh, theories within the originalist family relate to one another um, in a way that doesn't. Um, well, I don't know. I, I, it, does that sound reasonable to you or, or how, do, how does that sound?
2: Absolutely. And so I, I think that what you're the way I would describe uh, the set of issues that you have just raised is that um, there are two different uh, sets of issues. Uh, in these debates about uh, constitutional interpretation and construction. And of course, the same issues arise with respect to statutes, contracts, federal rules of civil procedure. So one set of issues is understanding uh, the communicative process that actually occurred. Right. So that's a historical inquiry. right? And the fact that it's a constitution does not make it sort of fundamentally different than uh, 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 the similar empirical historical investigations we would take place if it were a different kind of text, say a letter, right? So if you were reading an 18th century letter and you were trying to figure out what that letter meant, there's a bunch of stuff you would want to know. Like, you would want to know what the words meant at the time the letter was written. You would care about the semantics of the 18th century, and you you wouldn't want to make mistakes based on the fact that those words have changed their meaning in the interim because of linguistic drift. And you would want to know context is very important. So you would want to know what the context was, and in particular, and I think you were describing exactly this, what the communicative situation was. So who was the author of the letter and who was the letter written for? Because in order to figure out what the letter says, you have to know uh, who the letter was addressed to, what their understanding of the context would be. So That's a letter. We have the Constitution. So we want to know who wrote the Constitution, and we want to know who they wrote the Constitution for. And public-meaning originalists have an answer to that question, you know, and this answer has to be argued for on the basis of historical evidence, but their answer is that the constitutional text was written to be understood by the public that the ratification process reveals that uh, public comprehensibility was one of uh, the goals of constitutional communication. And there's lots of testimony from the people involved uh, in the process of framing and ratification that that was the case, that this text was written to be understood by, debated by the public at large. So that's one set of questions, but then there's a whole other set of questions that arise that are normative. It's possible, for example, it's at least theoretically possible that um, the people who drafted the constitution or ratified the constitution, aiming to communicate at the public, attempting to communicate in the public actually fail that they said things that were not understood by the public, so that the public understanding of the text is different than the intentions of the drafters or the understanding of of the Philadelphia Convention at the moment they passed the constitutional text on to the next stage in the ratification process. Those gaps could arise, and if they did arise, then we've got a normative question Do we go with the public understanding or do we go with uh, the drafter's communicative intentions? There's another kind of issue that arises and maybe this may actually have happened with the constitutional text. So the actual drafting work was done by Governor Morris or Governor Morris. And Morris uh, was a very good, very sharp lawyer with his own agenda. And uh, he was very careful in the way that he uh, uh, crafted some of the constitutional provisions. And, for example, my colleague at Georgetown, John McHale, has argued that he wrote the necessary and proper clause in a particularly precise and complex way such that an argument was opened up that the sort of the third uh, of the three necessary and proper clauses attaches to the preamble and creates uh, a sort of a national legislative power to implement the purposes of the constitution, including the purpose of advancing uh, general welfare. So if if John was right about that, uh, there is sort of a precise technical meaning to the text intended by the drafter, Governor Morris, uh, that is at odds with the way that same text was understood by the public, because this, this understanding was consistently disavowed by the proponents of constitutional ratification and sort of You know, my reading of the record is not accepted during the course of the ratification process. So we got a gap between the drafter's intent, Morris's intent, and the public understanding. It's a normative question which of those two meanings should govern.
1: I guess a third thing uh, that your Governor Morris example suggests to me is that we need to know not only who wrote it and uh, to or for whom they wrote it, uh, but what the what the writing in the context of a written communication, what the writing is designed to do, like it's, it is, it, there's a thing that is, uh, there's an aim that sought to be achieved. Uh, now, maybe the aim is, you know, in your letter example, maybe the aim is simply communicating recent events in my life so that you know what those events are when next we meet in person. Maybe the aim is... It's a coded communication because there, we're in the middle of military hostilities and I'm trying to get you to realize something by m- our previously agreed secret mode of communication. Um, but I think importantly,
0: like you're saying, if AIM is kind of metadata, right, about the writing, like w- what is this writing trying to do, that doesn't commit us to trying to recover the purposes of the drafters. Like you could say, what, what was the audience's understanding of the AIM? And that should be important.
1: Right. There's yeah. No, so yeah. The, the, that's true that um, uh, w- when you introduce the idea of aim, you introduce the fact that the author can have one sense of the aim. The reader can have another sense of the aim. Uh, as as Larry is talking about, there can be gaps where, you know, people aren't even agreeing on the aim. But it does seem to me that um, and, and and maybe part of what goes into to get back to the the Justice Breyer point in Noel Canning, that that part of what might help to adjudicate how thick the semantics plus pragmatics meaning should be is what you think you're trying to do with constitutions, what you think you're trying to accomplish. And so it would have effects on things like how big should the construction zone be, how much flexibility should that give to people now as opposed to a control given to people of a prior uh, uh Point in time and the like like so the 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 thing you're trying to do with a text uh, seems to me to be a critical another critical ingredient
2: absolutely and but I just want to i want to say that there's two different roles that aim or purpose or function can play, and that I think it's really important to pull these two things apart at, at in order to get clear about what we 're talking about so the first thing is that the purpose for which a text is written uh, is an important part of the context. So that if you're trying to understand a text, you're, we're always making assumptions about what kind of a text is this? Why was this text written? That helps you figure out what the full content delivered by the text is. In the philosophy of language, there are labels for the various kinds of contextual enrichment. So in many cases, the purpose of the text is important to uh, identifying what is, are sometimes called implicitures, things that are implicit. Like in our constitution, a general fact about its purposes is used all the time in adding to the explicit statements in the text. For the most part, not all parts of the Constitution, for, but for the most part, our Constitution applies to the United States. But the explicit text of the Constitution does not over and over again say in the United States or within the territory of the United States, as it could have. It could have been very explicit about this. But because we know what the purpose of the constitutional text is, without even thinking about it, we add those implicitures. They're part of the content, the meaning delivered by the text. That's purpose providing communicative content. That's different than another thing purpose can do. And this is characteristic sort of uh, post, of realist and post-realist thoughts about interpretation and construction. So we can use purpose in a different way. We can say, okay, we've got this text. Let's look at the text and identify the purpose. You know, Hart and Sacks, Harvard legal process style. We look at the purpose that is uh, uh, in the text itself, right? The function of the constitutional provision as opposed to the people who wrote it. And then we could say, the content of constitutional doctrine should be derived from the objective purpose or objective function of the text. So you go from text to objective function, to constitutional doctrine. That's an entirely different methodology than originalists use. Originalists say, uh, we look at the text, we identify purpose along with a number of other features in order to figure out the communicative content of the text, the meaning of the text, and that determines the doctrine. That's uh, a fundamentally different enterprise than saying, Let's figure out what the objective purpose of the text is and then use the objective purpose rather than the meaning of the text to determine what the content of the law will be. In the originalist setting, when you're after the communicative
1: content step, when you're engaged in the construction step, in the construction zone, however thin or thick it may be can purpose enter in like equal protection
0: can include this kind of thing but not that kind of thing but the kind of thing that it can include is more capacious than just one result
1: e- yes so so what I'm wondering is in that in that construction step does the originalist see a role for purpose um that that might be distinguishable from the role of purpose in gathering communicative content Um, and, and maybe it's similar to the Hart and Sacks thought about purpose, maybe not, but I'm just trying to get your sense of in the construction zone, what role does the purpose play? Mm.
2: That's a wonderful question that, uh, I wish I had sort of a fully worked out answer to, but here's, here's one way that purpose can play a role. So we have a, a constitutional provision that's vague, right? Where there's, a set of borderline cases that are arguably inside, but arguably not inside uh, the rule uh, created by the text. Judges can't say, "Well, it's in that that this text is vague, and therefore, you know, we can't decide the case." They have to decide, right? And so they need a precisification right? They need an implementing rule that precisifies vague text. <laughs> so one way that judges do this all the time, this is just so familiar that, uh, you know, as, as, as lawyers and legal theorists, we just take it for granted, is that you adopt a precisifying rule that you think reflects the purpose of the text. And so that happens all the time and it happens in constitutional law all the time with respect to constitutional provisions that are vague, but also with respect to uh, constitutional provisions that have a more complex form of underdeterminacy, right? In legal theory, we tend to use the term, the phrase open texture to to refer to this kind of underdeterminacy that's not Uh, simple vagueness, uh, but is sort of a multidimensional form of underdeterminacy. And so again, we need implementing rules that achieve the purpose of the text, but they're not included in the text. And it's not that anything goes, in designing the implementing rules. The implementing rules have to respect the fact that there will be clear cases, cases that HLA Hart would have said are in the core of the rule, right? And there are cases that are clearly not within uh, the meaning of the constitutional provision, but within what Hart calls the penumbra, within the zone uh, in which underdeterminacy operates, uh, we may need implementing rules. But there are other ways we do construction as well, and, and one of those ways is default rules. This happens all the time, it, you know, the, the concept of a default rule that it, it developed mostly in contract theory also applies in statutory and constitutional interpretation. It may very well be that in in some areas, constitutional construction needs to take into account default rules. And one of those default rules in some situations may involve deference to decisions made by other political institutions. And I think which approach you follow to constitutional construction is sort of a complex function of the kind of problem that we're talking about. Different kinds of constitutional problems, I think, require different approaches to constitutional construction.
0: So, Larry, I wonder if you can um, disabuse me of a, a hypothesis here. So it would work like this. Suppose that um, – and, and maybe it's that you think I've got the premises wrong. So suppose my premise is that an interpretive choice just is uh, for a given kind of legal question to, to possess a, mod, a relevant model of uh, data or a, uh, a model of relevant data, to have a choice of authoritative institution or institutions whose interpretations of those data you're attempting to recover. To have a choice of methodology for representing um, uh, that institution's choice of data, and including in that, uh, when you are assigning authority, is a choice about the when, not just not just horizontally at a particular time, which institution, but also you know vertically in in, in time, so uh, original or or not or something in between. And, and like I said, these methodologies are really important. The method by which you identify the relevant data, the method by which you try to recover uh, the meaning that an institution would assign, and and also just the theoretical commitment to a particular kind of choice, right, you know, originator or not. So suppose all of that is um, is what interpretation kind of, or an active interpretation is, uh, even if it doesn't apply that it should be a particular thing. Um, the hypothesis is that the choice, the, the choice one makes in, in all of those things may be governed by one's psycholo- psychological disposition toward authority. And that People who are more psychologically uncomfortable with the lack of authority will gravitate toward theories that choose narrow scopes for data, that choose um, distant-in-time institutions, and that choose more predictable methodologies for recovering those institutions' uh, institutions' meanings. So that might suggest that if uh, you're more comfortable with authority or you feel more attached to authority, you're more likely to choose one originalist methodology from the originalist family – um, a method which provides more certain modeling of, say, the public's reaction to a certain law or, or constitutional provision. And so this might lead you toward corpus linguistics or something else. So, so in fact, uh, at the same time, if you believe that despite these methodologies, there is a zone of construction and that may be bigger than people realize at the time, that will also lead people who choose those methodologies to – they also, for the same reason that they chose those methodologies, will gravitate toward conservative results. And therefore, originalist methodologies, when adopted, will produce conservative results, not because the methodologies imply those results, but because the people who gravitate toward each right there's, there's something which is causing both. Um, does that make does the hypothesis at least make sense? I don't know, and, and maybe you can disabuse me of it
2: so so uh, I hear what you're saying, but I think that uh, actually the relationship of originalism to political methodology is more contingent than that. You're sort of hypothesizing a general fact about human psychology that would attract people to both originalism and uh, 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 and to conservative outcomes. Yeah, and Larry,
0: just to be clear, it, it, it's just a hypothesis, and it and it doesn't necessarily. It, I think it applies more to like a popular. Um, uh, attachments to um, interpretation than it would like any particular academic attachment.
2: Let me just suggest a couple of scenarios here uh, that might illuminate this. I think that um, uh, one is uh, uh, to sort of project ourselves back in time to the New Deal and think about what was up with Justice Black, right? So Justice Black was clearly um, a progressive. He was a New Dealer Uh, There's no doubt about that. But Justice Black was very concerned with what he saw as an unconstrained power exercised by the Supreme Court to translate conservative ideology into constitutional doctrine. And he thought that the solution to that problem was uh, a commitment to what we now call originalism, a commitment to textualism. Uh, in constitutional interpretation and construction, right? And, you know, and then history happened, right? And Black's position lost out among progressive constitutional theorists during uh, the Warren court, in part because the composition of the court, once it had changed so that we had all New Deal justices, uh, which you have sort of by the mid-1940s, and then during the Warren court, a very strong progressive uh, political consensus among the justices, Uh, then uh, living constitutionalism becomes a lot more attractive because the progressives control the court. But how might uh, progressives react to living constitutionalism if it suppose that one or both of the two oldest progressives on the court uh, are replaced by conservatives so that we have a supreme court in the year 2020 that uh consists of seven very conservative justices uh and justice Kagan and justice Sotomayor under those circumstances would progressives be happy with a living constitutionalist approach by the seven progressives. And I think that they probably would no, not. I,
0: yeah, I agree with you. I, I just, I, my, this theory of theory choice really is, is about, is, is not, is not a theory about like how people would treat precedent in each and every case. It's more, uh, I'm trying to understand why, um, uh, or, or it's an attempt to explain why it might feel legitimately Correct and true to an originalist uh, that these are the right methods and that these methods applied in this way reach this result. And so you can find individual examples like Justice display. But but, you know, in the main, like the re- legal realists attacked, uh, you know, Lochner and other decisions as um, only illusorily about history. But they didn't then claim that a true reading of history would do something different, they said that's not the right way to approach law, right it's not logic, it's not history um, uh, it's it's something else there is There is politics here, right? It was an attempt to uncover the hidden political role of all of these decisions so
2: yeah, and go ahead. the point I'm making is that it is historically contingent whether you make those arguments, that it's not a matter of human psychology, it's a matter of the political situation of the time. So that uh, it would be perfectly conceivable to me that faced with uh, sort of an activist, conservative, living constitutionalist court, that uh, uh, progressives would begin uh, to become attractive to originalist arguments because uh, uh, that is the best way of arguing that these uh, uh, living constitutionalist but very conservative decisions are illegitimate and contrary to the rule of law. So the same arguments that appeal to conservatives in one set of Uh, Political circumstances could very well appeal to progressives in another set of political circumstances. And this is entirely consistent with the thing that you observed that I think is absolutely true, which is that in the sort of in the run of the 20th century, there were strong associations between particular positions in constitutional theory and political ideology. At the end of the 19th century, and sort of in the early 20th century, the association uh, uh, between progressive ideology and, and constitutional theory resulted in thearianism. right? The argument that the Supreme Court should get out of the way of democratic institutions and a very powerful critique of judicial review. This is nothing like uh, the kind of living constitutionalism that we associate with the Warren Court in the late 1950s and the 1960s. Uh, And it's in a different political dynamic in the context of a Supreme Court that uh, was dominated by uh, progressives that the idea that the Supreme Court ought to be engaged in the construction of a progressive constitutional jurisprudence that is not necessarily limited by the constitutional text uh, emerges. And likewise, uh, progressives today are faced with a different situation. And so, you know, what do we hear about now? One argument made by progressives today is for a revival of Thayerianism. So there are strong progressive voices calling for, at, at the extreme end, an end to the institution of judicial review. Then there's another option that's being considered, which, you know, has resonances with the New Deal era, and that's court packing. And you read a lot uh, about the idea that progressives perhaps ought to be making originalist arguments now. These are all options on the table. These options are on the table because of the uh, 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 interaction between the political constellation of power, political ideology, and the options that are available in constitutional theory.
0: Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I have a particular, you know, I, so I, I would separate structure. So I think there's a particular structural problem with the Supreme Court, which is revealed through politics over time, and and I think we need to get that structure right. But I wonder if, so to the extent there were a truly like activist, living constitutionalist, um, conservative effort on the court, what would be the response and the and the hypothesis you put forward is there might be a, a kind of retreat to the refuge of originalism be um, it's kind of a search for the right weapon to defend against this uh, this other weapon. And but I wonder if the response wouldn't be, despite, you know, rhetorical calls to uh, um, to pay attention to kind of, uh, you know, to have some fidelity to our core principles, which were, you know, uh, from the uh, Civil War amendments or from the founding, that, that it wouldn't be some version of Dworkin or Fleming, right, that that, that would be the way that you would argue, you know, it would be frankly kind of on the merits and an appeal to our shared morality, rather than to the authority of a particular person at a particular point in time. Now, that's to say nothing of the actual rhetoric. I'm thinking of what the people making these arguments would actually be thinking, right? Because I think, you know, the originalists uh, originalists today, I think, frankly, do think that originalism is the best, you know, approach to answering constitutional questions. Um, And I'm wondering what the what the response would be if if um
2: the 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 sort of the uh, moral readings approach which says that um the supreme court ought to be engaged in political philosophy and that uh, ultimately constitutional questions require the justices to make a good faith effort uh, to figure out what the best theory of liberty is, what the best theory of equality is, and so forth. Um, that approach, if addressed to conservative justices, will result in conservative doctrine. Uh, uh, they, the, 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 there's no getting around the fact that uh, if the court were dominated by political conservatives and they view their role Asked to provide what they believe to be the best moral reading of the constitutional text, that that will output um, conservative outcomes. So um, you, c- it's, you, know, uh, uh, you can react to that as a progressive in many ways. One thing you could say is, okay, well, I have to live with that, but we will get the court back, right? Uh, and uh, that's a possible response. And but, what if you can't get the court back, and it becomes clear that that's the case what well, That's why I think this scenario of sort of seven conservative justices is important as a thought experiment because um at absent a realistic chance at court packing at some point, I believe that the moral readings approach will just be manifestly uh uh inadequate as a practical strategy for uh, a a sort of a, a constitutional uh, jurisprudence that seeks uh, to prevent the outcomes that would be inevitable, uh, uh, given the Supreme Court's adoption of a moral readings approach. And so I'm just, you know, we're speculating here yeah, yeah, yeah. Of what the possible reactions would be.
0: But it. it, And I'm not advocating for a particular one. I was just.
2: I believe that for principled reasons, uh, uh, progressives ought to uh, adopt originalism and that this uh, can form sort of a stable compromise, that uh, the turn uh, to living, to sort of unconstrained living constitutionalism, turns out to have dangers that were not fully appreciated because they weren't on the horizon at the time uh, the move was made. But um, at, sort of as a, at, at, a, uh, at the level of practical politics, I think at some level, the moral reading strategy uh, just uh, no longer is viable. And so there will be a search for alternatives. And, and, and I think that the two major alternatives are Arianism, uh, a jurisprudence of deference, or originalism, originalism can only be appealing to progressives if originalist results are at least a mixed bag, if uh, the original meaning of the Constitution leads to a mix of progressive and conservative outcomes. And that's sort of a separate conversation about what the original meaning of the constitutional text is, sort of viewed as a whole, looking through all of the constitutional text, uh, uh, and sort of doing a, an accounting of the pluses and the minuses. Yeah. It's interesting.
0: Cause I mean, I, I was just trying to think of, uh, uh, trying to come up with a hypothesis of, of, you know, to explain theory choice in general, what, what makes people like, um, honestly feel like this is the best way of proceeding. And, um, and it's interesting because I mean, you point to outcomes, right? that, that, Theory choice will be, you know, driven by kind of pragmatic political considerations, and I'm, um, I don't know. I I, I wonder. I mean, I feel myself attracted to kind of a, an institutionalist footnote four, approach, which is part thearian and part common law, part moral readings, and in a way that I haven't fully worked out, um, and certainly don't want to get into now. But um, you know, but it's hard to say to what extent it's driven by um, outcomes. I don't. I, I mean, do you mean to say that, Larry, that, that it is um, outcomes that drive various camps to theory choice?
2: So So um, I think it's more complicated than that, but here's what I think I do think that um, the practical implications of theories are very important to creating the environment that makes some theories seem attractive and some theories seem unattractive. The general political context uh, in which we evaluate constitutional theories uh, is very important to what's on the wall and what's off the wall, what seems like a possible move, what seems like a nonsensical move. Um, Now, I think that sort of normative constitutional theory ought to be done in a principled way. So, you know, uh, when I make arguments of constitutional theory for originalism, I am trying to uh, provide a rigorous uh, understanding of sort of uh, how normative argumentation in the constitutional uh, sphere ought to proceed, right? Uh, uh, What role... Um, outcomes ought to play in making principled arguments of constitutional theory, and then I'm trying to uh, develop a set of arguments that I believe to be true, uh, and, uh, and 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 that I believe can appeal to a wide variety of political perspectives and moral perspectives that um, can provide justifications that are accessible to and can be viewed as reasonable by progressives and liberals and conservatives and libertarians uh, to people with a wide variety of moral and religious beliefs. So that's the way I think you ought to do it. But I think that the, the it is also true at the same time that the political situation uh, has an influence on uh, whether people are receptive to uh, a particular uh, constitutional theories and to particular arguments for those theories. So, you know, there's sort of, there's two things going on here. Yeah, yeah. One thing in the realm of normative constitutional theory, and another thing Sort of at, at 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 a different level, at the level of constitutional politics. Mm-hmm.
1: So, in the context of this paper, it's interesting because, in a way, we're sort of coming full circle. That in the in the context of this paper, it is both, in a way, uh, imperative that academic discourse, judicial discourse, and political discourse be pried far uh, enough apart for the academic discourse to. In, Engage with the kind of integrity right. that that you use here, and that, frankly, anything of yours I've ever read <laughs> exemplifies better than most things most people write. Um, but but the, the 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 internal integrity of an academic discourse as an academic discourse, right, has to get pulled away from those things, and yet we all can see that they're still in a a, a genuinely shared lived frame of you know. Human existence or whatever phrase you want to use for it that so we know that there are going to be these feedback moments as well right that and and what you just described in a sense uh Larry, the way that the academic uh the academic theorist can provide to the the judicial discourse and the political discourse sort of frankly therapeutic uh insights um or that they might experience as therapeutic um it, it is, uh, I think that's a good thing. Um, but whether it's good or not, uh, they, they are different and yet they are going to be communicating back and forth as well. So it's sort of an ongoing dynamic, it seems to me.
2: I, I think that that's absolutely correct. And so one way I think about this is constitute, we sometimes in political philosophy, we use this the, the terms ideal and non-ideal theory. This comes from Rawls, right? So constitutional theory is not just ideal theory, right? If it were ideal theory, we would be making the assumption that, you know, uh, whatever our uh, 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 constitutional theory is, it will be complied with. Uh, and then the, the question just is, in that imaginary world, what the best constitutional theory you don't
0: need, you don't need Marbury in the ideal world yeah,
2: exactly yeah. and so constitutional theory um, on the other hand is not uh, just the same thing as sort of real politics and it is not a prediction about what's going to happen it constitutional theory is partially ideal in order for the enterprise of normative argument to get off the ground, you have to make the assumption that normative arguments can uh, make a difference, that we can make normative arguments and that they can have an effect. But in the realm of constitutional theory, that it's normative arguments made in the context of real world differences, uh, you know, uh, uh, in Rawlsian terms, Uh, in light of the fact of pluralism and uh, in, in terms of constitutional politics, in light of the fact that there are going to be political strikes about the Constitution. And so you need to think about the fact that your constitutional theory will be implemented in a real world in which it may uh, meet political resistance in which there may be attempts to subvert the Constitution. And, and all of that stuff needs to be taken into account uh, in order to do academic constitutional theory that is both partially ideal, right, but that um, uh, engages in a real way with the problems that give rise to constitutions in the first place.
0: It's almost like the uh, calabresi Melamed property rules and liability rules addressed to a world that actually does have transaction costs. You know, exactly. Yeah. I I would commend this piece to people who are, you know, I've heard the word originalism before. You know, we have listeners who are lawyers. We have listeners who are non-lawyers. We have listeners who are law students and law profs. And just, you know, I, I think there's been so much written as part of this, what you call the great debate, um, which harkens back to the early astronomical debate about whether, <laughs> whether there were other galaxies. Uh, um, and you know, it was a big question. Um, as a really good entry point, because of the way you so carefully distinguish the different kinds of originalism and then different kinds of living constitutionalism and these hybrid theories, like it's just a good entry point just to get educated about the kinds of things that people are arguing about, and why they you know, and again the the other part of that you know why these theories seem to go together and what you conceive of, but you don 't defend all of those things here, but you provide you know copious references to stuff that you 've done um, doing that. it reminds me actually in my legal theory class, uh, my jurisprudence class, next week we are reading your piece um, on indeterminacy as I was reading this you know it 's like a reminder of um, of the role of determinacy, and your, but also your careful methodology in pulling apart the different arguments that people are making, um, charting these um, um, huge debates. And, and, and for that, it was like the debate between the crits and the law and economists. So
1: um, a lot of Larry Solon for me this week. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. <laughs> well, thank you, Larry. This has been terrific. We've taken a lot of your time. I re- we really appreciate it.
2: Oh, uh, my pleasure. It's been uh, tons of fun.
1: And I hope this is just the first
0: conversation because, you know, it is in so many ways that like this piece like lays a lot of groundwork. Mm. But there is a lot more to talk about. And 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 Larry is the font of much of it,
2: I think. Well, uh, uh, thank you so much. And obviously, it'd be my pleasure to come back Uh, again. This has just been a real kick.